0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Nancy Nersessian, Regents Professor of Cognitive Science Emerita at Georgia Institute of Technology. Her new book, Interdisciplinarity in the Making, is just out from the MIT Press. Based on examining physics and the practices of physicists, philosophers of science often see models in science as representational intermediaries between scientific theories and the world. But what do scientists do when they don't yet have the models or the theories? In her new book, Nursession reveals the bootstrapping creation of models in two biomedical engineering and two integrated systems biology labs. Based on her cognitive ethnographic investigations, she argues that models are cognitive artifacts that are central components in distributed cognitive cultural systems that include the scientists that create and use them. Nersession shows how the scientists build the epistemic infrastructure they need along with the novel modeling practices that their cognitive artifacts enable, in order to do the science that they do. Her investigations also led to developing award-winning curricula for science students. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Nancy Nersessian. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hello, Carrie. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm looking forward to our conversation uh, about your new book, Interdisciplinarity in the Making. Uh, before we get to the content of the book, tell us a bit about yourself and your interests and how you came to write the book.
1: Well, yeah, I think uh, it's important to have a little bit of background um, for the book since it is uh, an unusual research project. Um, so, I always had a passion for math and physics ever since I was introduced to those subjects as a child. Um, I uh, was encouraged by my teachers because I was really good at it. And in the Boston public schools, it was hard to find kids who were good at it and loved it. Um, So I'm sure that's why I got all that attention. And I remember, um, you know, because I remember the teacher, it was around fourth grade, um, the specific teacher, was talking about scientists and their work. And they talked about Einstein and relativity theory, I, of course, didn't understand what it was about. But at the same time, the what they said and the way they said it really inspired me. Who is this guy Einstein and what's he about? Um, and so I think that set me on a trajectory for ultimately wanting to become a theoretical physicist. So when I went to the university, um, I was uh, starting out in physics. And I was finding that I was getting more and more frustrated as the years went on, that the classes really weren't addressing now what I would understand as the conceptual nature of, the, of, of science, the conceptual dimension. What does it tell us about the world? And so I um, was, well, I was frustrated. I was doing the mathematics. I was a really good student, but somehow it wasn't getting at what I wanted. I didn't care about calculating where the cannonball would fall I wanted to know why it was falling in that direction so um, I by sheer chance and sheer luck I was forced to take a course in philosophy um, I wanted I wanted to get a, you had a choice of degrees you could get a BS or a BA and I decided to get a BA because I had taken things like Russian literature and German and all kinds of other stuff and I wanted credit for it So I had to take this course in philosophy, and to me, philosophy was naval contemplation. Oh, God, i got to do this. And you had a choice of a graduate student or a professor, so two-credit or three-credit course, and I thought, well, I'm going to suffer through a professor. So again, by sheer luck, I took the course with Milik Chopik. And Milik Czapik was a philosopher of space and time. And he taught the course like no other intro to philosophy course. Um, It was more an intro to space and time. So others were studying Aristotle and Plato and the pre-Socratics. We were studying Reichenbach and and, uh, Einstein and other things like that. So I thought, man, this is exactly what I want. It was like nirvana. So, um, it was pretty easy then to start pursuing philosophy. Um, in fact, uh, the institution, Boston University, had just started a new physics and philosophy program. So, I shifted in my senior year into it so I could get a double degree. Um, so, I was especially interested in the foundations of physics, especially general theory of relativity. And so, I got told that Howard Stein was the absolute best person to work with in this field. Um, And indeed he was. Um, And so that's how I became a philosopher um, and particularly a philosopher of science. And now I would call myself a philosopher, historian of science and cognitive scientist. So the question is, how did I get there? Um, So we were in graduate school. Um, We were studying Carnap, Hempel and Quine on the one hand, and everybody else but us, I was in one of the last bastions of logical positives. And we're looking at people like Kuhn, Fire Robin, and Hansen. So that was kind of the reading you could do off to the side, but it was not an integral part of our uh, program. But it was really, really extraordinarily interesting to me um, because they were using real science. They were talking about, you know, how scientists come up with ideas. And so I looked at Quine really as a bridging, fi- a bridging figure. So I was interested in concepts and conceptual change. Uh, Howard Stein actually had been Carnap's student. Um, And Quine is a bridging figure because Quine put forward this view of philosophical naturalism, epistemological naturalism. And they said that accounts of science, philosophical accounts of science, should be informed by the best science that's out there, a grasp of the actual scientific practices, and use of appropriate empirical methods were needed. And Howard Stein, on the other hand, said to my, I was getting frustrated with reading philosophers who didn't seem to know anything about what science was from my own understanding of science. I continued, by the way, through, through master's level work in general relativity. So um, Howard Stein said, read the scientists. And it was a you know an eye opening uh, uh, suggestion as a physics students you don't read the scientists you read scientific papers but you don't go back and read Einstein or you don't go back and read Faraday, um, so uh, I started reading Einstein's papers, but then I became really interested in the origins of the field. Where did the field come from? Um, and this was because in the Kuhnian uh, paradigm universe. Um, Conceptual change happened at at endpoints. There was relativity, there was, sorry, there was Newtonian mechanics, there was relativity theory, and nothing happened in between. It was sort of like Big Bang Theory, as I called it. And so I wanted to understand where did the concept of field first come into um, the, the scientific literature? And it was with Faraday, and with Faraday and Maxwell, who were the frontier scientists in their time. So I encountered Faraday's notebooks, and I was puzzled because all along the edges of those notebooks are diagrams, sketches, visualizations. He's using analogies. He's talking about thought experiments that he's done. And all of these things were anathema in terms of uh, philosophical analysis, but also in the history of science. They were seen as mere aids to thinking that was done by other means, logic of some sort, deductive or inductive logic. And to me, they seemed to be what was generating um, the, the uh, scientific ideas. They seemed to be genuine reasoning. And so I, I sat on a, I, I, I dubbed it model-based reasoning, and I sat on a path of trying to figure out how that works. And so there was, at the same time, a developing field of cognitive science – and cognitive science was looking at things like diagrams and visualizations and analogies, and so I started. That was when I started doing research in the cognitive sciences, as well as doing research in the in the in the history of science. So of course I couldn't do that in my dissertation. My dissertation really focused on Quine, um, and Fire Robin, and a little bit of the the you know my argument about why it's important to study the history of science. But when I left graduate school, I left with a two-pronged program. One, to basically become a real historian of science, too. That is, to look at archival records and to understand this kind of transition much more deeply. And on the other hand, to understand what was going on in the cognitive sciences and what they might have to tell us about the nature of scientific practice and scientific understanding. I thought Kuhn was right with the history and the, and the um, Psychology, but he had the wrong kind of psychology, and he didn't do the transitional periods history that I thought was necessary. So that's that's sort of basically where I started. Um, started the kind of research that I'm that I'm doing now. I went to the archives of Faraday in London, Maxwell at Cambridge, and then I went to spend some time in the Netherlands with H. A. Lawrence, um, who was a, a seminal feature figure in the in the development again of uh, the general theory of relativity, and Einstein kept saying so, but nobody was doing any research on him. So that was, uh, that was uh, basically, I became the world's expert on H.A. Lawrence. But I backed off on that for a while because it wasn't the history of science per se that I was interested in wanting to do it. I wanted to do it because I wanted to understand epistemic practices. Where do they come from? How do they develop? And how are they justified? So... Um, well, yeah go ahead. Oh I can I can I could stop at this point and take a breath.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I was going to say I think I think that kind of gives us a good um, uh, a good sort of background for, you know, with, I mean this book is uh, you know, actually following Kuhn and then some of the people you mentioned like Latour and Woolgar and the whole sociology of science, you know, that's what it struck me as this is a you know, updated 2022 version of you know, in some way, in sociology of science, much more informed and not at all relativistic or any of that stuff. Um, so maybe you can make it. Maybe you can tell us a bit about you know, the the book. You you're you're examining the cognitive ethology of you know four different research labs. Two or you know, biomedical engineering to our integrated systems biology. Um, and you have a analytical framework in which you then go into these labs and, you know, gather various forms of data, right? And I'll we'll find out about that data in a moment. Um, uh, but just to start us off, I mean, we're doing this sort of updated, you know, cognitive ethology of, of a lab, of labs, um what is your 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 sort of analytical framework for approaching that you you call it a you know you have distributed cognition uh between scientists and their um and their uh uh models of various types um it's a cognitive cultural system it has particular epistemic aims so it's you know definitely you know aiming to get you know, knowledge um, about the world, at least. Um, so can you explain this this framework that you apply to the labs that you look at?
1: Right. Um, that's, a, that's a good question because it's really important to understanding that research, but I also mean it to be a general framework for, for uh, investigating scientific practice. So let me just back up for one thing that I had wanted to finish on the other part. Um, which is, has a central place in this research as well. So models and modeling have private place in philosophy of science. Uh, the work of Cartwright, Geary, Morgan and Morrison, models are seen as between theories and the world. They're derived in some sense from theories, and they, they help us understand the world and, and, and um, investigate the world. Um, and philosophers have uh, focused on the representational relationship to the world. In the history of scientific discovery, models come first. So in other words, I'm looking at the other end. I'm looking at where did these modeling practices come from, and what is the nature of the intellectual work that's done with the models? And to understand that, I was on a multi-track investigation. Philosophy of science, social epistemology, historical science, STS, HOS, and cognitive sciences. Okay, so... um, Basically, models are what the cognitive scientists consider cognitive artifacts. Intelligent behavior uh, in, in contemporary uh, stream of cognitive science, intelligent behavior is not just draws on the resources of the mind, but it draws on artifacts in the environment. Um, Daniel Dennett has a great quote, a very pithy one as usual, which is that, just as there's not much carpentry you can do with your bare hands, there's not much thinking you can do with your bare mind. So I look at that as the beginnings in philosophy of the idea of a distributed cognitive system. Um, on the other hand, models are also the material culture in sociology. So, and the sociology of science. They're considered the things that make an epistemic community what it is. Are you biologists of certain type? Are you, um, um, what do you call it, hadron, uh, large hadron collider scientists? Um, so they have this dual nature. And so although the analyses of these things have lined up in our fields on either the cognitive side or the cultural or socio-cultural side, that's an analytical divide that we use for various purposes in, you know, in, in doing analysis of science. But it's not there in scientific practice. There is no cognitive-cultural divide. So what I'm looking at is how are the epistemic accomplishments of science How do they arrive from complex systems in which cognitive social material and cultural dimensions that I abbreviate as cognitive cultural are integrated into the epistemic practices that the scientists are creating, that they're developing, and they're justifying? So here we come to the limitations of historical records. Historical records and publications can't uh, give you a way of checking some of the questions that you have, you can't get the scientists up to talk to them again. You now, I would have loved to have a conversation with Maxwell, but that couldn't happen. Um, you're at the mercy of what's left behind. And, and what's left behind for 21st century science is really scary because I walking into our first lab, I said, oh yes, and we'd love to see your laboratory notebooks. And the scientists said, what notebooks? Um, basically we keep our recorded data on computers and that's it. And so the historical record has become even more impoverished as time has gone on. The Faraday's, who have these extensive tracks of their investigative pathways, are few and far between in the history of science, and I doubt there are many in the history of contemporary science. it is also difficult to determine what sociocultural resources are being drawn from and how they interact with their epistemic practices um, by looking at historical records. And so, I turned again to the cognitive scientists. As I said, there's a, a there's a, a, a an aspect of cognitive science that is called I called environmental perspectives or some people call it 4E cognition, says that cognition is embodied, it's embedded, it's enculturated, um, and it's distributed across humans and artifacts, cognitive processes. So I like this Hutchins quote, which very mirrors the Dennett quote. The Hutchins quote says humans create their cognitive powers by creating the environment in which they exercise those powers. So cognition and culture are inherently integrated um, in human thinking. Um, And so, uh, the way in which they investigate uh, this this kind of environmental um, interaction is through a method of cognitive ethnography. Well, ethnography of of research labs has been done in STS and they've shown a wealth of uh, data and understanding about the sociocultural dimensions but they've tended to be really reductionistic, um, uh, reducing everything to social cultural factors, leaving out the rational uh, and cognitive dimensions of science. But of course, those are inherently dimensions of science. Scientists use brains and minds, as well as social practices, in order to develop theories. So that stance that that has made philosophers leery of that that work and leery of uh, ethnographic work isn't inherent to ethnography. It's inherent to a particular program of the um, social reductionism. So my, what I argue is that if we look at what's going on in the cognitive sciences, they're using ethnography to look at problem solving, reasoning and representation, decision-making and learning. They're not looking at things like epistemic warrant that we're interested in as philosophers as well, but they're looking at how, particularly in work environments, people use the resources in the environment to do their problem-solving, to do their decision-making. And uh, it's perfectly applicable. Hutchins is a cognitive anthropologist. So why should philosophers seed this source of rich, important data Uh, to the social sciences, to the social studies of science. That's sort of basically what I was arguing there. So we have a methodology. And then with respect to the framing, it's basically um, the framing that Hutchins has of distributed cognition, that is distributed cognitive cultural cognition. um, But at the same time, it needs to be modified or extended for philosophical um, for philosophical use, for, the, for looking at the epistemic dimensions of science. It's needed modification for three ways. Uh, first of all, it needs to uh, look at a different kind of task environment. In the task environments that are studied in distributed cognition, you have um, the resources are already there, and people know how to use them. Um, in science, you have them building, creating what I call epistemic infrastructure, the infrastructure for doing science, creating the resources that they need to use. Um, the scientists themselves are learners. In the labs we studied, they're graduate students learning to be scientists at the same time that they're becoming pioneering scientists. So if you look at if you look at um, the task environment, it's very, very different from the task environment where everything is set. The next thing is, the contribution of the human component. All distributed cognition has said, by and large, is brains do coordinating. Well, they do a lot more than coordinating. So I'm trying to think about, you know, what we can take from a richer understanding in the cognitive sciences, that uh what is the mind contributing? So um there's a lot of stuff, but I focus on mental modeling. Um and then it's an epistemic practice that is. In the in the um, landing of an airplane, you might use a speed bug. Or piloting a ship, you will use an alidade, and this is an essential cognitive artifact for you. But at the same time, you aren't concerned with justifying that alidade and uh, its status. But it, for for us, not only do the models, for example, that scientists create need justification the novel modeling practices that they're developing need justification. And so that's why I say these are distributed cognitive cultural systems with epistemic aims. That framework is not limited to interdisciplinary practices, and I think it's not limited to studying research labs. In fact, I I, uh, use a little bit of it, but not developed in this way in my earlier work on conceptual development with historical documents. So I look at this as, a, as sort of a general framework for analyzing scientific practice, um, but the reason i used interdisciplinary practices were two. One, serendipity of what was available to me, and two, um, that when disparate practices come to the fore, the biology and engineering are about as far apart as you can get. Then you begin to see how the different dimensions of the cognitive, social, material, and cultural sort of are interwoven in Mm. these practices.
0: Okay, good. Um, So uh, let's talk about what you did. You know, before we want to get into the exact, you know, at least one example of... uh, of a cognitive culture artifact that was developed and that you looked at. Um, but um, one of the things that struck me in the book was the, uh, how, you know, in the course of, you know, gathering your data and then, you know, analyzing it, um, uh, no, some of the other labs that you, you know, that were within your purview, even if you didn't do them, they were like, oh, could you do our lab? You know, they, they like wanted to, which is really interesting because it's, it's it seen, it, it, it came across as, you know, we're doing an intervention and I'm not saying that this is what you're doing, but came across as, oh, could you, you know, help us or something? Um, so maybe you could could you tell a bit about you know what exactly did your ethnography consist of what did what did you do in each of the labs what data did you gather and what were the you know the basically the research outputs of that data and why did you know other labs that you didn't do so to speak um, wh- what was good what was in it for them what what benefit did they see.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, I, I'll let me talk about the stuff we gathered, et cetera, in a minute. I'll talk about the last thing first, and that is, so the this project was embedded in a, in, in a different project. That different project was a project of helping bioengineers develop a state of the art curriculum for learning their practices. This came about by accident, that's why I said. I was director of the cognitive science program. Um, they wanted to build this new educational program. They learned from NSF that cognitive science might help them. And so um, most of the engineers and scientists at the university didn't care. Um, if, when they had to add uh, something about education, they would call me and ask me to spin a paragraph. <laughs> but these, and I would do it. But these engineers came and said, "Well, what can it do for us?" And so um, I, you know, I, I went through that explanation for them. But then um, I said to them, "But I need to understand your practices first In other words, I had in my mind I wanted to do something like this project, and so. I thought, okay, I want to understand their practices first. The question is, can we get the money to do it? We did. We got substantial funding from the National Science Foundation, from the Educational and Human Resources Division, um, not from SDS. although I have had STS NSF grants, um, because we, we said we had a new vision of how to do starting with graduate education and then undergraduate education. So at the same time, we're collecting and analyzing these practices, we're also working with them to develop ways to create uh, educational um, opportunities and and developing uh, curricula that would reflect these practices that are emerging on the frontiers of science. So um, that's why the book, this book, got written very much at the end, because a lot of the work over 20 years went into satisfying the requirements of my National Science Foundation grant and working on that program. I would that and so that's why others were very, very interested in what we were doing, because what they saw was also they said that. The students who were taking that program were coming into their labs so much better prepared. Number one, and number two, word had gotten around that the people we were interviewing with and interacting with that those graduate students seemed to be much more reflective, and and um, you know much more understanding actually of their practices than other. uh, scientists, uh, other aspiring scientists. And so they said, oh, well, do our lab. Maybe, you know, maybe you'll, you'll sort of um, beef, up, beef up our reflection. <laughs> so, so, okay. So now um, what do we do? So first of all, um, we would do pilot investigations to, 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 to uh, find out what's important. We started out with biomedical engineering, which is an area that really was seeking to integrate biology, medicine, and and, and engineering into their models and their practices. We found very early on that models were the central devices in every lab, were the central objects in every lab um, in whatever field that we were looking at. It's a model-based practice um, as I think science is in general. Um, And uh, from pilot studies, you could come to learn very quickly too that these models were the loci or hubs of cognitive cultural integration. There where the men- mental and artifact representations come together, there where the concepts, methods and theories of biology and engineering need to come together, but they also the lab is organized around them. The epistemic norms and values are embedded in them identity, mentoring, history, learning, all of these things take place around the models. So we decided because, you know, the lab is a blooming, buzzing site of confusion, um, we decided to focus on then the models and the modeling practices. And so our our, uh, observations and our interviews were all around the modeling practices. And so, uh, we would observe what they were doing to the extent that it was possible without disturbing their research. Um, and we would um, start out with initial interviews about unstructured interviews about what are you doing? You know, what is your project? What's your problem? And they would uh, follow out on that. And then we would, you know, read and analyze those using various qualitative methods. And we would come back and not not have directed uh, interviewing, but interviewing that was more focused on, okay, so uh, how did you get there? How are you going now? Um, we, were, we were interviewing them about what they were doing during the problem solving processes, basically. And so that's what made this sort of really exciting because um, all of that stuff would be written out of the history of science. All of that stuff doesn't appear in the records of publications or in archival materials, usually, unless you're, again, a Faraday reflecting on it and trying to put it into your materials. But here, they're telling us, you know, okay, um, there's a reason why we're using this particular model, even though it's a simplified model. Here are the reasons that we use the model as it is, or that we built the model as it is. We use this notion of building as a technical model uh, notion, building models to discover design, construction, evaluation, experimental, experimentation, and redesign are the iterative and incremental processes of these scientific practices. They're bootstrapping practices and or what you might call, following Hasek-Chang, epistemic iteration. I really like that term. So these are the processes that create the discoveries or achievements, but they are also the processes that create the distributed problem-solving system, with the aim to achieve certain epistemic uh, ends, and so um, right, so so basically, uh, we we collected data uh, along those lines, observations, interviews, but then we also collected uh, photographs of what was going on in whiteboards, uh, um, drafts of papers, uh, sketches and diagrams that they were drawing. Um, it, it was a massive. Uh, archive, uh, in order to be able to do what ethnography needs to do, which is to triangulate your interpretations from multiple sources. So, for example, in a couple, couple of instances, um, we were uh, lucky to online witness some major scientific discoveries. Um, and uh, we didn't know it as we were going along, and neither did day but when it became evident that something really really interesting important and novel is emerging here we could one go back and look at our record and we could two more intensively focus on that particular episode which became the
0: cases uh, in, in the book uh, that I that I investigate mm-hmm. and okay. and then this so all this these interviews and notes and pictures and stuff um, Uh, The output is what? Uh, Well, okay,
1: so we had weekly lab meetings um, in which we came together and uh, discussed uh, various dimensions of of our investigation, but we also did uh, coding. So uh, it's called grounded coding. Um, I don't quite like using that term because it's very inductivist, but basically um, it's what emerges from a line-by-line analysis of your interviews, for example, Um, but guided by your research questions. So the guided by the research questions makes it not, you know, this this idea that suddenly things are just emerging that, that become of interest. But of course, things do emerge that become of interest suddenly. Um, and that took some of our research in, in different directions than we had uh, orig- originally planned. So we would get together as a group. Um, some coding was done beforehand by specific people um, in the in our research group. We would come in, we would discuss the codes, we would refine them, we would write definitions. And then we would build this sort of database of uh, Okay, so here are the important things. So, for example, like analogy was a very important thing. Models are built analogies. They're built in particular to exemplify certain dimensions of the features of the system that's under investigation and the behavior under experimental conditions. So we, we have this whole category. We have all uh, the data that would fit in that category. We've looked at field notes. Um, we've looked at uh, whatever else is available, um, sketches or diagrams that people developed in the process of building these analogies. Um, and then we would then do a theoretical, a more abstract analysis on, for example, the nature of analogy in this practice. So one of the things I think that is really interesting that came out here, um, although I had some indication of it uh, in the historical records as well, is the idea that, okay, in in the cognitive sciences and in philosophy of science, everybody looks at analogy as you have a particular problem that was solved, and that problem that was solved is mapped somehow um, in a way that gives you insight into your problem at hand. So in other words, there are ready-to-hand analogies out there uh, for you to use. But in these fields, there are no ready-to-hand analogies. They're doing something that's never been done before. By and large, they have to build the analogical sources to address the topic. And so building the analogical sources um, is again this iterative and incremental process that um, nothing is known about the model that they're building, the source, and nothing is known about the real-world problem that they're addressing. So we have two unknowns. And so most of the research focuses on figuring out what this model is, what it's doing, and
0: then how it relates to the real-world system. Right. And then, I, so I guess a lot of this, you mentioned before, you know, developing a curriculum, Right. Um so I, I guess all of this informed the curriculum that you then developed, right? Because you as you mentioned, this was a you know initially, you know, sort of embedded within a education uh grant.
1: Right. But that was that was never my main focus. That no. was a means to an end. <laughs> right. No, 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 which is right. you know, far. No, from but yeah, I think that was really good. So I, I, I can tell you a bragging point, and the bragging point was that curriculum two years ago, won the National Academy of Engineering's Gordon Prize for Innovation in Education and Engineering. Cool, and is, this, is a,
0: this like widely available? I mean, is this something that, you know, other institutions can, you know, so pick up in some way?
1: Yeah, well, it's not, it's not an established uh, thing that's written down as a curriculum, of course, but there are certain practices and outcomes and procedures. And those actually are. So my co-PI, Wendy Neustetter, uh, focused mainly on working with the engineers into developing the curriculum. Um, I worked with her on the research that went into developing the curriculum, but she did that. And so she became uh, very well-known in the engineering education community. She um, you know, has propagated this, worldwide, um, many institutions have now taken up this approach um, uh, that, we, that we did. And basically, it's, 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 a, it's a problem-based learning, but we call it problem-driven learning because it's not the hypothetical medical model, but that's where this kind of focusing on problems came from originally. Um, it's a model-based curriculum. Um, it's, um, it's done with uh, small groups of students. The uh, faculty set in in the undergraduate uh, uh, courses, the faculty set problems that have bio, engineering and medical dimensions. Uh, Every problem has that. And then the students are led through problem solving processes. They are, um, the, the, the the teachers are basically facilitators. They don't stand up and teach the stuff that they need to learn. The students have to go out and basically find and determine and then come back and get guided by, uh, get guided by the um, instructors uh, about how to keep going towards solving, solving the particular problems. There's a whole repository of problems that have been developed. Um, and um, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. And, and uh, although we only worked with the beginning courses, the faculty were so impressed with um, the results of these that these sort of problem-driven learning elements got propagated into all of their courses by themselves with the help of Wendy and other learning scientists that they ended up hiring. So many the, the, the award was basically the, the innovation based on this collaboration. Um, and so I would say that what's propagated too is the idea within within uh, various fields in engineering that uh, collaboration with people in learning and cognitive sciences is needed in order to really develop uh, frontier uh, science curricula.
0: Cool okay. Um... So, so back to the the models, right? Um, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of questions. Maybe you can focus on just you know one of the labs and one of the um, you know cognitive cultural models uh, that are developed, you know, and used in this distributed cognition system. Um, so you've got you've got four labs there, but we're only going to have time for one. Um, can you choose one that you think would be a good, uh, you know, a good illustration of uh, of the of you know of the mo- of your model right of what they're doing <laughs> yes yeah.
1: okay i do want to say that the second field that we chose was integrative systems biology that does purely computational in silico simulation modeling Um, But I'm going to talk to you about the in vitro modeling of biomedical engineering. And the reason why I want to focus on that is because this is a novel uh, practice. This practice I haven't found anywhere in the philosophical literature. And yet it's an extremely important practice, um, certainly across the bioengineering sciences. Um, And uh, so uh, the problem is there are issues of ethics and control to experiment on real-world systems like human beings. So, what these uh, uh, bioengineers are trying to do is to figure out ways to examine complex biological systems, uh, bringing together cells and tissues and uh, that that are that are requisite for the particular problem and engineered materials. So one of the sexiest and most interesting models of uh, our, across our our labs was uh, something that was called the Mayart model system uh, in the uh, uh, neuro, neuroengineering lab. So the neuroengineering lab, their goal was to look at network learning in neurons. Um, till, prior to that time, there were only single neuron studies that uh, learning was probing sing, single neurons, questions of learning. And um, there was uh, computational neural network modeling, but the, uh, the uh, uh, PI of that lab thought you can't really get to the understanding of uh, how neurons interact with one another by building these computational models. So what he set up was... uh, A a system that you could bring together networks of neurons, record and stimulate them in feedback systems so that you could hopefully teach them to learn something. Now, this is a great, greatly, greatly simplified model system. Um, It... uh, It consists of a dish of neurons, about 40,000 neurons, that are dissociated rat neurons that have uh, green fluorescent protein has been bred into them so they could do optical imaging at the same time. It's plated on something called a multi-electrode array. And the multi-electrode array is the basis for stimulation and recording. So a lot of the lab is concerned with how to record the signals that come from this particular dish. But as he argued, so neurons learn in the brain with networks, but very, very complex networks, of course, as you know, all the parts of a brain. So here we have the system that's only looking at 40,000 cortical neurons. Um, what in the world can we learn from that? But it's really interesting because the cognitive scientists uh, cognitive neuroscientists said, you know, well, if they can learn something from this, um, if they can learn, if they could teach it to learn, we would really understand something very important here. So um, the research was supported um, and the director said, but there's a problem here. The problem is, is that the neurons in the body are embodied. That is, they have, a, they have a body to interact with. So we have to create embodied systems here. And so he drew from the cognitive science literature on embodiment, and he created two kinds of bodies that hook up <clears throat> to the brain, basically, the, the dish. Um, and one was computational animals, so animats he called them, and the others were robotic devices in the real world. And so by creating feedback loops between the device and the body, the hope was that one could create uh, signals, basically a mathematical representation, to uh, create systematic controlled learning in the dish of neurons. So they were approached by a, a biomechanical art uh, uh, research group who were interested in this dish of neurons. And so they set up this model system. This is only one of the model systems that they used, uh, embodied model system, but they set up this model system that was called a living robotic artist. It was a mechanical arm and it was a model of an arm. That is, it, has, uh, it was built and designed on uh, all that we know about the sort of physiology and musculature of arms. And what it did was draw. It drew in response to the signals it was receiving from the neuron neuron dish. The neuron dish uh, then would uh, receive signals back. It would then change the course of the drawing, and the hope was for the researchers that they could get Mayart to draw from between the lines. Um, I actually, on the cover of my book, um, I have one of Mayart's drawings. I probably have the only cover art that was ever drawn by a dish of rat neurons. Um, this, this system communicated. Uh, the the uh, research group, the artist research group, were uh, in Australia but it also had exhibitions in China and in Europe and, and various, various places. So this graduate student was great because he got to travel around with this all the time. But he was doing a research project. And the research project was, can I get Mayart controlled in how it draws? And so they, were, they had a big problem. The problem was is that the dish seemed not to settle down. It was constantly bursting all uh, this phenomena, sort of system-wide electrical discharges. And that was obscuring any lear- learning that might be taking place. It, was, it, seemed, it seemed that they couldn't understand it. They wrestled with it for well over a year um, and were exceedingly frustrated. In fact, one of the graduate students said, I'm quitting if I can't get this to work in the next few months. Um, another one of the graduate students decided, well, you know, how about if I do some computational simulation modeling of the dish? That is, create a second-order model of the dish. Um, And the director said, no, I don't think that I've done that kind of modeling. It can't give us any information. But, you know, it's your dissertation. You want to do it? Go ahead. Um, That was generally the attitude in these labs. So he did. And in fact, his idea was that he could use a thousand neuron system and he could control it and have all the affordances that one has of a computational model that this model doesn't have. You can stop and start it. You can look at it at different points. You can add uh, information to it. You can take things away from it. And basically, you 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 can develop visualizations of it to see what's going on. And he chose to develop a network visualization. of of the neurons. Now, they had already been working with the visualization, but it was on an oscilloscope. And so it was a per-channel representation. It did not represent the network dynamics or the network features of the model. And so what he saw after he made lots of movies of of, of, what was going on in the bursting phenomena, and what he began to see was that, in fact, there were similar-looking bursts. And so they weren't these random things. It was a possibility that they could be a signal to control rather than this noise that they had originally interpreted interpreted as. So what happened with this is that, I mean, it ultimately did lead to a control control structure for for directed learning, which is absolutely amazing. But what it did also with the distributed cognitive system is that these, these, um, so here's a new cultural resource, a new material resource um, that comes into the lab and it's saying something different from what they have they've been working on so far. And it's a it's a novel, it's a novel practice. But they become intrigued because if you look at the patterns that are emerging, and we looked at it too. He showed us the movies and you could see it. Bursts now are changing conceptually too from noise to signal. And so all of the researchers now, all three of them, begin to work together on different aspects of this problem. So in other words, they were working largely separately before, but here they begin to work all together and they work all together on the interaction of two model systems. One is the in vitro model system, one is the computational model system. And so together, they're able to actually solve the bursting problem Uh, create new concepts. Um, One concept, the center of activity trajectory, is a brand new idea in neuroscience of learning. And in fact, that publication won an award. Um, And so they've moved the understanding along. And at the same time, they began to think, well, maybe bursting is a phenomenon that takes place in the physical body. We know it takes place in babies, but then the human brain quiets down, but not in certain diseases like Parkinson's and epilepsy. So they begin also to collaborate with um, medical researchers uh, to see whether or not it's possible to use their control structure on humans. So, I mean, that's basically how that research goes there. it's it's. Uh, In these fields, bioengineering sciences want to create understanding sufficient to control or manipulate. So they're not out at the moment to construct these huge, you know, theories of complex biological systems. These are domains in which, for example, there is little to no biological research on the phenomena that the engineers are addressing. And secondly, there are no theories about the biological phenomena. So unlike the physics-based modeling that we see, and it's been studied largely in philosophy of science, both in the in vitro and in the in silico modeling that's done, um, there's no theory to inform the models. So it's a different kind of modeling where models are built from the ground up in those kind of bootstrapping processes that I talked about. And that is common across all of the practices across all of the labs but I think that might give um, people an understanding at any rate of what this kind of research looks like and what, uh, what its aims are, what are what are its epistemic aims and what are its pragmatic aims?
0: Interesting. That's um, yeah. I mean, I didn't, all of the examples you give are, are super interesting and I, I particularly enjoyed the, the neuron, the dish as, as they called it. Um, so let me ask you about, um, you, at, you end with, a discussion of some of the virtues of, you know, the sort of effective interdisciplinary problem sor- solving. Um, so could you, could you say a bit about, you know, what you saw as the main, you know, some of the main virtues that you, um, that you saw, that you observed in, 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 in looking at these labs?
1: Yeah, so um, as I said, I, I always like to end the books that I write with the sort of forward-going research. So this is just a start on what we would begin to call epistemic virtues for interdisciplinary practice, from the things that we saw in the lab and for the kinds of interventions that we tried to develop, and also from what's out there in the SDS literature. Some of these are original to us and some of these are not. Um, First of all, cognitive flexibility. One needs to be able to look at a problem from multiple perspectives, to have the sort of uh, intellectual uh, flexibility to do that, look at it from a bio and an engineering perspective, for example. Um, Methodological versatility. Uh, All of these researchers had multiple methods at their disposal. And that was extremely important uh, for their interdisciplinary practice. Uh, Having just one single method um, doesn't allow you to address these kinds of intractable problems or seemingly intractable problems. Um, Resilience in the face of failure um, or obstacles. They... Fail on a daily basis. <laughs> Dish cultures die. Things go wrong. Um, it's 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 a constant failure in these cultures. Um, I think in scientific research in general. I mean, I think all scientists acknowledge that um, you have to be able to have the resilience to continue your research uh, in the, in the face of uh, these impasses. And um, the cultures, they built it into their culture that this facilitating of, 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 of the um, of resilience. Um, now, also, as people like Harry Collins and others have pointed out, you need to be able to interact with collaborators, uh, particularly collaborators from other disciplines. Now in BME, they by and large didn't collaborate, but they could go on and collaborate. They were trying to be biomedical engineers, uh, all dimensions. But in systems biology, biologists and engineers who were doing systems modeling both had to be so steeped in, and sophisticated in their experimental and their computational practices and advanced math practices that it was it's impossible really to create that kind of a hybrid. And so this is where collaboration came to the fore. Um, and what Collins turned uh, interactional expertise um, developing an understanding of the other's practice to the point where not you are not doing the practice but you can talk about the practice but not only talk about the practice but also have an understanding for example of the methodological principles of that practice um, for example you know why what's possible to do in biology and why do biologists focus on points, for example? Uh, What is it possible to do with modeling? Why do modelers focus on trends? This used to be a big point of conflict between the modelers and the experimentalists in the labs that we studied, Um, because the modelers say, you have no idea how hard it is to collect that point, and anything could go wrong. And then the the uh, modelers are saying, but we can't focus on points. We need lots and lots and lots of data, and so therefore we have to look at trends. So at any rate, developing this inter- interactional expertise. And then we coined another one, which is called epistemic awareness. Now, what we saw is that... The various cultures do not understand or appreciate the epistemic norms and values of the other culture, and that that create a lot of difficulties in collaboration and unwillingness to do collaboration because there's an idea of what is good science and what is good science for a biologist and what is good science for an engineer or applied mathematician are really quite different things and so, With the BME program, because we were creating them as biomedical engineers from the outset, and they were, in addition to the problem-based learning stuff, they were taking courses in all of these areas, they were actually developing these competencies. In systems biology, they didn't have these competencies. They didn't have a program to develop these competencies. They weren't going for a full educational program. And so in the little time that we had to, to work on that, We just did, well, let's do sort of, you know, minimalist interventions to see whether or not those affect practice. So, for example, sending a modeler to summer school, one month in the summer in an experimental lab, doing real hands-on stuff and getting a sense of what it's like. Or, as we help them do, developing a basic uh, introduction to biosystems modeling course that Uh, engineers who hadn't done any modeling in that domain and biologists would take together. Uh, In both instances, we had students basically saying the scales have fallen from my eyes. Um, uh, I understand now. uh, I understand what's going on. I understand why he or she needs what they were asking for. Um, I understand. I thought this was one of the best ones. I understand the questions he should have been asking me, that is, the person from the other field should have been asking me. That's tremendous. And these were the little tiny interventions that, you know, basically that we did. So I think that education in interdisciplinary fields, and not just these fields, but in interdisciplinary in general, needs to attend some to this meta issue, this meta issue of what can we do to actually what's needed. To in 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 um, in in developing our, our students particularly our graduate students who are doing the research um, how can we cultivate these epistemic virtues
0: great um okay well we have about one minute uh, minute or two to to wrap up um so tell me what you're working on now are you are you following up on the work that's published here or have you turned to something else i mean what's what's on your near horizon
1: yeah well I'm, I'm I'm involved in a couple of things first of all i'm following out new frontier modeling practices not quite to the extent that i'm doing here because i no longer have the resources that i had but particularly these lab on a chip or organoids what are called microphysical systems these in vitro simulation models are now reduced to the size of a memory stick so I want to understand how they're built, how they're justified, etc. cetera. Um, I'm also interested in, you know, qualitative methods have become very uh, important in the philosophy of science of practice. Many people are using met- these methods now um, uh, of, of various sorts. And so I'm putting together a special journal issue on qualitative methods in philosophy of science. But then my long-term project is One I'm calling Interdisciplinary Lives, and this is being done together with uh, my former senior research uh, methods person, Lisa Osbeck. Um, And it was inspired by two things. One, that students would come up to me and I would give talks, particularly in scientific audiences, and they would say, that's me, that's me. Um, But I, I, you know, I don't I don't know how to be interdisciplinary, basically. Do you have any suggestions for me anything I can read? And I was remembering uh, and you may remember this as well. This uh, book called Working It Out, Women at Work, still still in publication now. Um, and uh, it's about, it's women uh, philosophers who are writing about their lives as women philosophers. Um, and Evelyn Fox Keller's "Why I Am Not a Theore- Theoretical Physicist" was my aha experience in graduate school. So, what we're looking at, we're we're interviewing uh, men and women, and uh, and uh, also the literature on things like identity. And we've coined this notion called epistemic identity. We have an article in Perspectives on it. Um, Identity with respect to cognitive practices. So this identity with respect to cognitive practices has epistemic implications uh, for your practices, for your norms, for your values. And so we're trying to understand in the course of these interviews, um, how they play out in uh, an individual researcher's life. And then we're also trying to gain an understanding, um, you know, of again, with these uh, virtues that we've we've developed and maybe finding out more, you know, what makes for good interdisciplinary practice. We're choosing people who have been successful. Um, because we want to know, you know, what were their challenges, how did they overcome them, uh, what, are, what are the affordances of the certain kinds of approaches that they had, and hopefully we'll be able to have a, a concluding chapter in this book that will be useful to young interdisciplinary uh, researchers.
0: Good. Well, that sounds really, really exciting. And uh, there's a whole nother conversation here to, you know, about a lot of more things in the book, but also the whole idea of, of interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarity across um, uh, sciences and humanities. Right. Um, And I'm thinking, you know, philosophers, you know, who come from a very different culture from, from empirical researchers, um, which is another kind of, uh, difficult well, to something I
1: navigated
0: in my personal interdisciplinary yeah. life. Right, right, exactly. Um, well, um, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me and, and new books and philosophy. Um, I hope it's you know, I hope you enjoyed the, the conversation. It's been very informative, I think, for everybody. And
1: thank you for inviting me and giving me an opportunity to talk about my book, which is something that every author loves and enjoys.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, thanks again, and uh, good luck with the work you're, you're, you're embarking on now. Okay. Thank you. Uh, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Nancy Nursession. We've been talking about her new book, Interdisciplinarity in the Making, which is just out from MIT Press. Dr. Nursesian is Regents Professor of Cognitive Science Emerita at Georgia Institute of Technology. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.